welcome to how i got hired vikas pota is a globally respected leader and driving force for good in education international development philanthropy and technology sectors his achievements include creating global awareness on the importance of education and specifically about the centrality of teachers and the teaching profession his passion for dialogue and collaboration has made him stand out in a field that is normally bound by national boundaries and ideology you know just as an example what he has achieved through the global teacher prize is truly unique and special convening a vast range of people from all different backgrounds and shepherding the conversation to achieve a consensus on the inclusion of the teacher workforce in determining the strategies of education as a part of the forum for example vikas has engaged with leading voices such as tony blair charlize theron Louis Hamilton, George Orsborn, and so many more. This is such an honor, Vikas. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you for inviting me to this. My pleasure. So, Vikas, let's dive right in. Um, and your career, you know, specifically your first job, which was at HSBC. Talk to us a little bit about how you landed that job, and if you remember specific things from the interview experience. Sure. When I was at university in the UK, um, you know, we used to have something called the milk round that used to happen, where employers used to come to you, your university, and pitch uh, mm-hmm. their companies to you. And and you know, in that year, we, we you know, I must have attended uh, uh, quite a few of these kind of presentations, and HSBC was one of those. Um, you know, truth be told, like you know, all of these require uh, a lot of work, and in those days, you had a paper application form that you had to fill in. and um after i graduated from university i took a year out and i did some voluntary work i did some um some traveling and during that time also i filled in all these forms which would take a a a substantial amount of time uh, to articulate you know all the all the things that they look for and um i remember that the hsbc application i did was probably the 70th or the 75th application of wow. the year that i was making to a graduate scheme of one of these big companies um you know knowing that you know it is enormously difficult to get into these kind of schemes and so if i if i if i did manage it then there would be a great thing and um and lo and behold at the end of the process you know a, a few of these kind of applications did come through um where i had interviews and i had job offers and i took up my the role at hsbc because that sounded the most interesting mhm absolutely and what did you call that the milk round <laughs> yeah it was it was known as the milk round like you know that's what employers did at uk universities where mm-hmm. they would go and um they would go and actually just you know tell people who they were and try to get to the brightest and the best graduates at the at the best universities i went to um i went to a good university not one of the best universities mm-hmm. uh, and but we had a very good program and that's why employers like like HSBC would would appear um, at our campuses uh, to tell us about what they did absolutely yeah this is a global thing in fact uh, campus on campus placement and you're very you're very right about that the quality of your program is what attracts uh, you know leading employers so and and i love the fact that you are honest about you know the the fact that it's you said it's not it wasn't the best university it doesn't matter what matters is what you do afterwards with that education so i i love that you dropped that right <laughs> at the start well, of our know, conversation I, I, you know i've had lots of opportunity to go to many of these leading universities since i graduated right mm. um and it's one of the it's one of the things that you know 
again, my mother, you know, we were a Gujarati Indian family mm. and my mother's, uh, you know, uh, long held uh, grudge is that, I, you know, I didn't become a doctor or an mm. accountant mm. or anything like that. And, um, and so, and neither did I go to Cambridge or Oxford. Mm. Um, but, you know, in later life, you know, I've had lots of opportunities to engage with people at these universities. And I was, I was really stoked, actually, to be invited as a visiting practitioner at Harvard. Uh, I've done various things in other universities as well. And um, it's those moments that actually, when you reflect back on your journey at university, um, and, and then you think, well, look how far we've come. Exactly. Um, but but that also makes me appreciate what happened at my own university and the uniqueness of the program there. So you're absolutely right. It is the program that matters. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And yeah, I mean, your mom. Yeah, it's uh, an Asian <laughs> thing yes, across the board. Uh, but hopefully, you've made her very, very proud since then. <laughs> well, 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 just so ha- just so happened that you know, few, uh, about five years ago. Um, I, I had a letter come through from the vice chancellor, who is like the chief executive of the university. Um, and I, I hadn't had much contact with my university since I graduated. Um, and the letter, you know, I, I remember I woke up in New York. I, I was attending around, around this time, actually, the UN General Assembly. And, um, you know, I woke up, obviously, New York is five hours behind London. And my, my, my secretary actually emailed this letter to me. She said, um, you know, when you wake up, uh, just read this first. Um, and so I remember turning my iPhone on and you know, rubbing my eyes and seeing this, uh, this document that had been sent to me by someone who I'd never heard of. Um, and it was a letter conferring an honorary doctorate on me from my university. Um, and, um, and I remember laughing about this because, um, you know, the, the, the thing that I told you earlier was, you know, how my mom said I never, I, mm. I, I never became a doctor. Well, well you did. <laughs> I, did. I, did. I, I love it's, that. It's often, it's often a source of much laughter in my house with my kids, <laughs> uh, especially because you know, every time there's a medical injury or anything like that, I say, I thought you were a doctor. Uh, <laughs> and so we, oh. have, we, have, we have a good laugh about this. I love that. You know what they say, because uh, be careful what you wish for. So it's like, you know, doctor, doctor, and, and you know, the universe, whatever you want to call it, the spirit, that, you know, force heard you about doctor but you didn't specify what type of doctor so you still got your wish (laughs) i love that so let's um, look ahead now in the last you know so the next 10 years of your career they were pretty rich right pretty rich pretty diverse um you know founding companies but also working in advocacy so explain to us you know because how this all played out was it intentional you know or did you just sort of go with the flow you know, so just uh, just the other day, actually, I had this young lady from America contact me and she she's part of the Teach for America program and considering her options now. And she was asking me for careers advice. She was 23, she was 23 years old, exactly half my age. Mm. Um, and in my conversation with her, you know, and I, was, I was reflecting on what would I say to a 23, 23 year old me? Um, and I think the advice um, that I gave actually reflected my experience as well, which is in those in those first 10 odd years after you leave university or you enter the workforce, I think, um, you know, you should actually broaden and get as much experience as you can in a number of fields before deciding what you want to major on or focus on. Mm. 
Mm. Um, too often people make mistakes which say that, you know, we want to specialize from a very young age. And, mm. and of course, like in some industries and in some sectors, that is, that is, a, that is a necessity. Um, but lo and behold, I, I would think the ability to get a broad range of experiences, I think, uh, has been quite important. And in the first 10 years, like I said to you, since I graduated, um, I, I found it quite useful. So after HSBC, uh, you know, the one thing I realized was how much I hated working for large companies. Um, you know, it was, it was just a little bit, it's a little bit stayed for me. Mm-hmm. And so there's a very dynamic uh, young telecoms business uh, that was um, that was contracting at, at HSBC at that time, and in the telecom sector, there were there were massive shortages of of talented people. So they had this specific recruitment drive for those who didn't come from a telecoms background to join the sector. And so I put my hat in the ring, mm. and I got this job, and I loved every minute of it. You know, it was it was in it was in high value sales to large telecoms businesses like BT and and, and the like. And what I really enjoyed was the interaction that I had uh, with people in my HSBC job, incidentally, like, you know, the, the moment that I realized uh, that um, you know, the place wasn't, wasn't suited to me was I remember going on holiday with some, with some friends of mine to, to Cancun in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And these were university friends of mine. So this was a couple of years after we'd all left university and started our own careers in various fields. And I remember I had to study for an exam. So I took a file with me and I was sat on the beach very sadly in Cancun with this folder. <laughs> and, and one of my university mates uh, turned around to me and said, you know, you, you, you know, and again, at university, I was very much outward facing, very much an extrovert, very much being involved in student politics and the student union. Um, and, and the clubs and society scene. And so he made an assumption and he made a statement. He said, you know, uh, it must be fabulous working for HSBC because you must meet hundreds and hundreds of people um, knowing the kind of personality I was at university. And the penny dropped at that mm. moment where I, I came, you know, what I said to him made me very sad, which was, you know, if I did my job properly, I'd probably only need to speak to my computer. And, and at that very moment, as, as the words escaped my lips, Mm. I, I, I knew that I had to leave because this was not in my, um, you know, it wasn't of my liking. I, mm. I wasn't enjoying it. And actually what I really enjoyed was being out there and speaking to people. So, um, so it was that moment and I can tell you exactly when it was that I decided that this wasn't for me. Yeah, that's surreal. You know, it's like you would listen back to yourself and you're like, did I actually say that? Like I don't recognize yeah. myself, and uh, no, no, that's that's super interesting. So it was a. It seems like you know these years that uh, you had after HSBC was a combination of sort of strategic uh, direction and also sort of going with the flow because we do need a a balance, right? Because if you're planning too much and plans go astray, which they usually do, um, then it's it's all about being agile. So, Absolutely. yeah. And, and then uh, talk to us about, I'm fast forwarding a bit more now. Talk to us about the Varki Foundation. And, you know, these guys um, approached you to be CEO. I, I, I want to know the story. Like, how did this happen? Because most people can only dream of this. Well, one of the things that I did before I joined the Varki Foundation was, was I had my own consulting business. And um, Sunny Varki was a client of mine in that mm-hmm. business. And, you know, I was thinking about, I, I'd reflected as well in terms of, you know, I never thought entrepreneurship was something that I would take to. And it kind of worked in the sector that I was in and what I was doing, I was successful at. Um, but I also came to realize that 
uh, actually there were two things. One was, was that um, I didn't really have it within myself to take my business or my consulting business to the next level. I didn't really have much knowledge or experience or exposure as to how one would do that. And so that realization, you know, I had a great bunch of clients. I was earning pretty well out of it. Um, and so when I, when I reflect upon that, um, the lesson I took away was uh, maybe I should go and get some other experience. So at that moment, I had a bunch of clients uh, uh, who I confided in and spoke to. And, and, and the Varki Foundation opportunity came up that way where the things that I offered as a consulting business, um, I, you know, the, my employer said to my, my, my next employer said to me, come and do that for me on a full-time basis. Uh, and, and here's the role, here's the remit, here's the mandate, here's mm -hmm. the budget. And, and he empowered me to go and uh, go after that. And so that is how that really came about as an opportunity. I see. I see. So are you talking about the time when you, when you founded uh, Saffron Chase? Yeah, so that was my consulting business. Right. Yes. yes. And then uh, Barky Hub. I, I totally understand that. So um, I'm a little bit uh, all over the place. We're very unscripted here at how I got hired. Uh, going back to Saffron Chase, I'm, I'm a little bit curious because mm -hmm. when you start out your own business, you know, you need to be hired uh, by clients, right? You need the yes. oxygen, which is, which is um, you know, revenue and income coming in. How was that experience for you, particularly in the early months in terms of attracting clients? Yeah, so you know, one of the things that I I I, um, I think is quite important to state at the outset is that you know we were in a we'd carved out a space for for ourselves in a space that wasn't too densely populated. So we made um, you know we 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 identified some niches in in the kind of sectors that we wanted to work in, and we developed those. So in those, we had a bunch of companies that were willing to actually try us. And, you know, one led to another, led to another, and, and so it built. Yeah, um, yeah. But certainly it came from identifying the gaps that existed in what companies were looking for, uh, for the services we were providing. And, and then developing the, the depth and the expertise and the specialism that's required to actually do that better than anyone else. Now, because we were so early on in terms of um, identifying that niche, uh, there wasn't much competition but which hotted up over a period of years um, as the sectors that we worked in really, really got prominence. And so it was at that time where, you know, you as a very small consulting business are competing with some giants like yeah. in industry. And yeah. you have to consider, well, what do I do now? And, and what did you do that was different? Uh, well, I, I, I went and joined, um, you know, GEMS and the Vaki Foundation mm -hmm. uh, because I felt that that would be the best way of actually putting to use the knowledge that I'd gained and acquired um, and actually um, develop a new platform. Yeah, I love that. Um, and and staying here for a second, so, you know, um, because anybody who's out there who started their own little consultancy and, you know, maybe they started out in a very niche area, just like you did, and then it's um, grown a lot and they're competing with these you know, Goliaths uh, of the world. Any any words of advice to them? I think, um, yeah. So there's two or three things. One is um, one is actually know why people want to speak to you. Mm. You know, and the more the more you understand that, the more you can develop your proposition around the strengths that people see in you, as opposed to try to offer you know a very broad based kind of service offering. Um, really do drill down deep, and I think this is the time for that. Uh, having all-purpose kind of consulting, uh, consultancy businesses, I think that time is gone. 
Um, and the sector is changing quite massively where people want depth as opposed to breadth. Yeah, yeah, no. Very wise words. Um, some people might say, yeah, that's, uh, that sounds simple enough, but uh, it's all about putting it into practice. And that's where the magic happens. So, yeah, love that. So, um, Vikas, we're recording this in 2020. You know, ever since COVID-19 has, has come about, everyone's talking about WFH, which is work from home. Um, we don't hear a lot about SFH, which is study from home and studying and learning um, from home. For all the students out there who are listening, students and parents, um, you know, what can you, you know, share with us in, in the form of some tips to keep up the learning momentum during the present time of lockdowns and remote education? I think you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, we're in this, um, we're, we're speaking during the pandemic, uh, which has had a cataclysmic impact on on the education sector where, you know, mm -hmm. billions of children were forced out of school uh, and we all had to think about how we continue education. Uh, my, you know, I, I myself am the father of two kids, two, mm -hmm. two girls. Mm -hmm. um, lucky for me, they were a little bit older than most of my friends. Mm -hmm. uh, and they were, my kids are a little bit more independent mm -hmm. um, and they're able to navigate some of this journey on their own. But those that actually have much younger kids um, you know, had no choice but to actually, you know, abandon their day jobs and focus on their kids, which is the mm -hmm. right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of there's a lot of learning that's happened through that. But you know, I would say this chaos that has ensued requires requires a few things. Mm -hmm. And so the first thing is, if you have children, and I say it in the context of having children, um, you know, I think what you need to do is convey a sense of calmness into uh, uh, the situation. Um, the second is you know, make a plan that achieves outcomes. Mm -hmm. I think these are, these are all things that you'll recognize as being so obvious, but if they're so obvious, why is it that they're surprising when people say them, right? Mm -hmm. um, the third is create routine. Mm -hmm. um, the fourth is help your child believe that they can do it. Um, um, the fifth is help your child, um, you know, focus on well-being. Um, and also on your own well-being because mm -hmm. it's, it's quite stressful times um, and, and, you know, ensure that there is a focus on individual progress and feedback for the child. So that's, I think, these are some tips that we have as to what seems to work uh, when it comes to studying and learning from home. Um, obviously, that is complemented by the fact that you need an adequate internet connection and sure, a device, sure. Um, sure. which, again, you, you know, whilst you and I take for granted, uh, we shouldn't assume is the case uh, for the vast majority of people on this planet. And therefore, we are very fortunate in that regard, and we have to recognize that. Absolutely. And if anything, the, uh, you know, the, the, the pandemic has, has helped surface the digital divide. Um, that exists yeah. pretty much in the whole world and not just in, you know, developing countries or emerging markets or what have you. So, no, very, very practical. I, I'm, I'm not, you know, jotting down notes as we speak <laughs> because I have two kids as well. And the time we're recording this, uh, because our kids are in school, but who knows for how long, you know, there's another wave coming, who knows? So it's, it's good to be prepared. No, hundred hundred percent, and like you know, the thing that I come to realize, and I know this this isn't the remit of 
of this particular podcast. But you know, there's a we all have to make contingency efforts and and plans as yeah. to what will happen when this when when this you know the inevitable I think will happen. Yeah. If I just take my own kids' experience, like I said to you, is that the rules have changed quite so massively over just last the last two three weeks since I've been back at school as to what counts as having to self isolate or not. And just in this week, because you have a lot of freshers going to university for the first time, yeah. um, there's a lot of focus in the UK media as to well, you know, there are there are universities that you know kids have paid a lot of money to go to, and all of a sudden they're in lockdown in their own university halls or residence, uh, and you think, how fair is that on these mm-hmm. young people? And mm-hmm. so we have to make contingency plans, uh, and th- that is the era that we live in. Absolutely, I can't even begin to imagine you know starting college or going to school or not even like physically going to school because what these kids are going through it's the first it's one of a kind uh, experience absolutely it is, it is and in the uk you know what it is uh some is that um is that you know our exam system has been massively disrupted where kids yeah. who are 16 and 18 you know couldn't take their gcses and a levels so they had to have assessed grades and there was chaos around that absolutely you know, imagine the uncertainty oh. and the stress that comes from that yeah. uh, and now having you know having having got a place at university and then making the emotional investment as well as financial investment and then turning up to your halls of residence for a moment you know for for a very special period in someone's life and then being told hold on you just have to stay in your bedroom for the next month uh, where i could have stayed at home and done that yeah. um, you know it, it, it proves very tricky a situation absolutely and the the thing that you talked about grades and and the entire experience at uni none of it is fair it's not fair it's uh, it is what it is so we're navigating it as we go along. Um, Vikas, um, so throughout your career, you've had this unique viewpoint when it comes to education. And when you look at the future of work, um, what are some exciting new jobs out there that might come up in the coming 10 years, let's say, uh, which students today and the education sector today should be gearing towards? You know, that's a really great question, Sanal. And I, I want to just make sure that everyone, uh, although it may be stating the obvious, needs to understand that, you know, public education systems in general are pretty slow at, at thinking through these kind of issues. Not that they don't care. It's just because education is one of those long-term investments that you make. Mm-hmm. And so uh, in 2018, by way of an example, in 2018, I, I held a, a rather large conference for educators from around the world. And we, the, the central question we posed was around how do we prepare young people for the year 2030 and beyond? And um, with 2030, the thinking wasn't just because it was the deadline for the sustainable development goals, mm-hmm. because, but also because in 2018, any child entering education at that point would for the next 12 years go through their schooling and yeah. graduate in the year 2030. Yeah. So it wasn't an abstract conversation. It was a real conversation about a child that entered school that year. And the responses that we had largely um, pointed towards um, the education sector and, and the teaching profession not knowing the answer. Mm. And that itself tells you a lot, actually, as to when we think about when we think about careers advice in particular at schools. Um, but we also think in terms of, well, what are these courses that have been designed in the curricula that is designed? What is it aiming towards? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's one very obvious thing I wanted to state at the outset. 
The second thing I wanted to say was, you know, I take every opportunity I get to speak to young people mm. and give back in that way. And so, like I inferred earlier in this interview, I spoke to a young lady actually just last weekend about what she should be doing in her career. And, you know, when, when someone um, doesn't really have a calling or doesn't really know what to do, um, there used to be this, um, this age-old belief that a few professions will always be, will be here to stay. And I used to give the advice that unless you really know what to do and you need to start making decisions, um, you know, I would consider, for example, uh, accountancy, become a chartered accountant because the world of finance will always need people with those skill sets. You know, there's a, there's a statistic that I read that out of the uh, top 100 companies in the UK, the FTSE 100, you know, something like 60 or 70% of their CEOs uh, started out, out as chartered accountants. Um, mm -hmm. Or I would say, um, you know, become a medical doctor, uh, a, a general practitioner, perhaps, because people always fall ill and, you know, uh, being yeah. a doctor profession and therefore that's something worth pursuing or i would say something about when you become a lawyer uh, because people always have disputes and you'll always need lawyers but you know the the, the landscape has changed so much uh, because of the use of technology and just new ways of doing things that i'm not convinced that for example gps uh, or doctors with the advent of telemedicine and chatbots um you know, using AI uh, and fabulous websites, uh, I'm not saying we'll replace doctors, but certainly the amount of doctors that are required may be minimized. Uh, or if you take accountants, you know, or, or even lawyers to that case, you know, the amount of back office outsourcing that happens to locations like India or the Philippines or in the future in Africa, you know, will really mean in terms of, well, what does it mean to be a lawyer in the UK or the US or in the OECD countries? Uh, because someone else somewhere can do your job for much cheaper and probably better. Uh, and so these are real big questions that we ask. And given also the pandemic and the, 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 the realigning of economies that's going on, it's a very difficult time to actually have uh, uh, an accurate prediction, even 10 years from now, as to what the future is. There's a, I do want to point, however, to someone who I've known for some years, a gentleman called Richard Watson, who, who, who I don't think would call himself a futurologist, but for convenience sake, I use that term today. Um, Richard, um, you know, just like the London tube map, which all of us have seen, he, he's created this great infographic based upon what he has read and observed and seen um, and which you can download from his website, which is now in next.com, which basically talks to you about the key trends and a technology timeline um, going forward for until 2050, if I'm not mistaken. And on this map, you know, he talks about things not being so far away, such as uh, such as. Um, you know, urbanization, uh, such as digitalization, uh, such as the power shift eastwards, um, and at and, and a more granular level, things like, you know, industries such as space tourism, mm -hmm. consumer e-health, mm -hmm. you know, um, uh, then uh, one of the trends being uh, around device convergence, uh, you know, and, and so and so forth. So I, I definitely look at this kind of infographic, uh, mm -hmm. which he claims that he has evidence that has been written about somewhere or another uh, in some periodical, whether it's The Economist or some website or some research uh, report um, that he's compiled onto this infographic. And it's worth having a look at simply because it makes you think, crikey, is that really the world that we're entering in? 
And it seems that it is. And we're better off actually opening our eyes and saying, this is where the future is. Um, because if we understood that, we'd understand what we need to do to prepare for that. The other thing that's very true also, um, Sonal, that we need to bear in mind is this concept of lifelong learning. You know, um, you know, Yuval Harari in his books has often talked about how we will have an increasingly long uh, longevity in our world where we will live to 100, 130, you know, and, you know, finishing university at the age of 21, where we normally cap our professional education, will no longer do. And therefore, we'll continuously have to keep on learning. And, and that is, I think, what will happen uh, to all of us. And, you know, in my lifetime, I know I have learned and unlearned and relearned uh, a lot of things. And I yeah. think that's a permanent feature of our society. Absolutely. Love, love both those points. And, uh, you know, to add to your last point, Linda Grattan, 100-year life, I mean, it, it couldn't be more true. And, um, you know, it's remembering the, 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 the fine young woman you spoke to, who's, uh, you said, is half your age, um, we also need to stop asking kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? We just have yeah. to stop because we don't stop growing up, um, whether you're 23 or 46 or or. 80 you can still do you can still evolve there's time we have time um so I, I love both those points thank you for sharing and you know looking at the the biggest recession that we are in today and young people out there who are now looking to get jobs i love that you said you know don't be super duper focused just look broadly um learn some skills and keep moving um but in terms of getting hired in the midst of this recession, because there's a huge amount of competition, right? And, and, and people who've never worked before, it's scary. You know, you only tend to see scarcity. You don't see abundance here. So any words of advice, Vikas, to someone um, listening to you right now? Yeah, I mean, so um, not, this applies to everyone, not just a young person looking for mm -hmm. their first job or looking to get hired. Mm -hmm. The one thing that we don't do enough of is, is calling upon people we know for the help. Mm -hmm. um, and so there are some great stories which I can share. And actually, Sonal and I were discussing these as well. Um, you know, one of these is a friend of mine called Sri Srinivasan in New York. Mm -hmm. um, and I hope you have the opportunity to actually get him onto this podcast. Yes. But he, he used to be the chief digital officer of the Met Museum in New York. And he was let go. And one of the things that he did whilst he was leaving the building was just put out a Facebook post saying, hey, listen, I've been fired. Uh, and anyone got any ideas? And he put up this, this Google sheet where okay. you could go and say, oh, Shri, this is a great idea. Uh, I'm not saying, and what he had were, were hundreds of people are actually put, you know, inputting into his, his thinking process as to what he could do as a, as, as a next job or his next career. And through that process, he landed his next job. I think that's an extreme version of what I'm trying to say, which is don't fear asking for help. And so today we have all these tech tools at our disposal, whether it's an Instagram, a LinkedIn, a, a WhatsApp group, you know, and we, you know, don't be, don't be afraid to come forward and ask someone saying, you know, do you know what uh, openings there are? Do you know what I should do to develop some skills? You know, and this, everyone I believe wants to help. And so if that is the attitude and the spirit you go with, you'll find more people willing to actually join hands with you and help you. Yeah, and so absolutely. That, that is the thing that I wanted to uh, reiterate yes. uh, when it came to came to answering this question. It's a great point. Um, uh, place the ego to the side, and if you don't ask, you don't get. It's the same thing 
And uh, <clears throat> I love that you shared that not only for graduates, but it's also related to our job negotiation process when it comes to salaries, etc. There is such a, a stigma attached to it. And I tell my clients the same thing. If you don't ask, you will never get. So the fear is actually more than the thing itself. It's built up so much in, in our brain. It's, it's amazing. And thank you for sharing. No, Sorry. It's, it's also interesting, Sunil, about different cultures and how they approach these subjects. Yeah. So if, you, if you go to the East, mm-hmm. you know, they're very open about salaries, right? So you yeah. go to, I remember when I was young, visiting my relatives in India, and yeah. you, you know, say, oh, he earns so and so much. Like, you how know, much do you earn? Huh? How much do you earn? You think, oh, I'm not sure I can say that. Yeah. And, well, you know, it's very much a cultural thing, and we need yeah. to break out of this. I'm not saying to that extent, but certainly, like, you know, I, again, if you operate on the basis of, um, you know, good people wanting to help you, um, then I think the entire frame of reference changes and you gain confidence. If you think that people are out to screw you, then they will. Yeah, yeah. So it's, approach yeah. it with confidence is what I'm saying. Yeah. And pick the people that you want to speak with carefully, sure, but open yourself up and ask for help. Yep, love that. And and uh, to add to your point, whether you think you can or you can't, you're right, Henry Ford. It's a, a classic that never goes out of style. So fabulous. Uh, so because we're coming close to the end, I'd like to ask you something, which I ask all my guests, which is a one standout defining moment that supercharged your career and helped you move towards your current success. Can you think of one such moment? Yeah, I mean, um, if you remember, I um, I spoke about um, how I went from HSBC to work for uh, to work for a telecoms business, and mm-hmm. what happened. Uh, and I was holding this story back from when when you asked me the question earlier. <laughs> what what happened after that was um, as much as telecoms needed people to enter it. Uh, it, there also came a point where it started going through a, recen- a recession of its own. And this, so there were mass redundancies around the corner. And at that point, actually, one of the things, that, the luckiest thing that ever happened to me was uh, someone thought of me and they said, look, we're, we're, we have a jo- job opening and uh, we think you'd be an ideal candidate. Um, and, but it was half the salary. Mm. It was, however, more responsibility. And I, I rolled the dice. And I went for it and it probably made my career. And so because of the things I learned in that role and from there, I've never looked backwards. So I think the, the lesson I'm trying to say to you is, is don't fear um, stepping out of your comfort zone, you know, because very, very exciting things can happen to you. Uh, what's the worst? The worst is you go get another job that's probably higher paid. Yeah, the worst is you stay exactly where you are, um, which is yeah. not which is not so scary after all. And and I love what you just shared that that juicy little example. Thank you for holding out on us. <laughs> um, the, the the really interesting thing is that sometimes what we perceive as one step back, two steps forward, the step back is not necessarily even back. Uh, it's it's exactly how the value is perceived. So, um, and, and obviously, you know, great things have happened since. So you roll the dice, it worked out, but you know, you put yourself out there, you had a network, you asked, you have a personal brand, you know, invested all of that stuff in, in time. People don't just think of you if you're not reaching out to your network. So, you know, extremely important stuff. Um, fabulous. So Vikas, um, how can people learn more about you? 
Well, they can, they, we can connect on LinkedIn. We can connect on Twitter. You know, I have a Facebook page. Please, please like that. Uh, if you need to contact me, just, you know, email me. Uh, it's pretty, you'll find me on, on the internet as it were, as where everything else lives today. You know, so one of the things that I, I, I do want to say is, you know, the thing that makes the world go round, which I have learned through all these different roles, jobs, organizations that I've ha- uh, that I've been part of, is relationships matter the most. And so if there was one thing I would say to you about your career and your career growth is invest in your relationships, um, you know, with the people you work with, uh, with the people around you, um, d- don't forget them. Because I think um, in the end, we're all very social beings uh, and we want to work with people we want to work with. And that is often how you get hired as well. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Uh, relationships triumph. Sometimes I feel relationships even triumph, um, you know, talent or skills because it's not even about what you know and who you know. So it couldn't be more true. Love that. Uh, because this has been such a pleasure and such an honor. Thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And I look forward to, uh, to engaging with you in the future. So there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, I'd love for you to do one little thing. Go into the platform where you listen to this podcast, click and subscribe to this podcast and leave me a fabulous review. Why? Two reasons. One, it's going to help more job seekers find jobs and help their families. I can't think of anything more important right now. And two, I'll always be grateful to you for doing that little thing but with big impact so thank you so much for listening thanks for hanging out with me today and until next time take care of yourself bye for now